with that. We are working through um, a book called Doctrine by a guy named Mark Driscoll and Gary Brasiers. Um, it's a really good book if you don't have it, if you're interested in doctrine. It's a really cool book to read. It's very easy to read. It's 13 chapters, and it's the story. Uh, it combines doctrine with the story of Scripture. I think that's very important to understand that um, what we believe as Christians aren't just... Um, aren't just a lot of different facts that come out of Scripture somewhere, but there's a story that God has been doing from the very beginning of creation. In fact, if you think about creation, if you think the Bible and our part, what we're living now, is a part of this great story. Humans love stories. Humans of every culture, every background love story. It's something that's pretty interesting, that every culture tells stories they they act them out they paint them they portray them they write them down and we are no different we consume stories as americans uh movies television books it's all telling a story and we and the reason that is is because we are living we are living out a great story that god's been writing from the very beginning and so what we've been working through in doctrine is we see the, the curtain open in Genesis chapter 1 when it says that in the beginning God created. And so we started with the fact that number, doctrine number 1, Trinity, God is, he exists. He, Scripture doesn't try to explain where he came from because he didn't come from anywhere or who he is. It just opens, the stage opens and God exists and he creates. And so you have the Trinity, and then you have the fact that, that we are reading in Genesis 1 that he speaks to us and tells us what he is doing. So the fact that this God who has always existed communicates with mankind, that's called the doctrine of revelation. And then we see that he creates, and that's the doctrine of creation, that all that we see and all that we feel, all that we touch, all comes from him, from his intellect and his words. He spoke it by his power. He flung it into existence. This all comes from him. And then we talked about image. We see in the garden that he takes out of the dust of the earth and he forms man. And it says that he formed us in his image after his likeness. We talked about how we that image means that we reflect him. We reflect him to creation. And being a part of creation, we reflect creation back to God. And so that's why that's why by nature we are worshipers, because our very being is made to take of creation, reflect that to God and worship, and, re and take that, that element, that image that we have of God, that creative element, and reflect that back to creation. And then uh, Dale shared with us the bad news about the fall, and then that in, that in the garden, very simple rules, like we talked last week, things are pretty good. You're naked in a garden with a woman. Things are pretty great. You don't, I mean, you have a, a job, but it's not a job you hate. It's a pretty cool job. You're like the boss of all creation. Pretty cool. You get to name the animals and name the rivers, and you're running the show. Just one rule that he couldn't do, and he and Eve, Adam, being that he broke that rule, and then the tragic consequences that dominoed from there and how all of creation fell underneath the, the weight of sin. And mankind, who was created for greatness in the image of God, has this sense of a lost greatness. Have you ever thought about that? Like, you as an individual person and we as mankind, 
we have this collective memory that, that there's this sense that we were destined for something greater and better and bigger. And that's, that's the result of the fall, that we were created to be something different, something more than what the fall created us to be. And then um, I got to share last week about covenant. Um, and that's the, just the basic concept that God, his interactions with mankind is based on covenant. And the great news about that, the takeaway from that is, we, remember we walked about through the different covenants, the Adamic covenant, you guys remember that? The Noahic covenant and all the way through the, those cool names. And you guys gave me great feedback. We talked about the real takeaway from that is that God pursues man. That a result of the fall is we were separated from God. We had no interest in him. He came after us and he pursued us. And whenever he made a covenant with man, every one of those covenants, coming all the way down to Jesus, was a covenant that God made. And he said, I will make it, I will keep it, and I will see through it to his completion. Remember that Grace was talking about and Hudson about how the the covenant he made with Moses, I mean with Abraham, where he split all the animals in half. Like usually both both peop, both men that were making a covenant together would walk through, but only God. He put Abraham to sleep and he walked through it saying, I will keep this covenant. And so in the midst of this old covenant, the, all these old covenants that we see unfolding in scripture, we get these spoilers. If we think about it in the concept of story, you're watching a movie like a really good mystery or, or like one of those really artsy movies that nobody knows what's going on until at the very end. And then like they drop something else and you still don't know what's going on because it's like a dream within a dream within a dream. But they, along the way, they drop little hints that whenever you finish the movie or you finish the book and you look back, you're like, oh, yeah, now I see. But at the time when it's happening, you don't really know what's going on. Well, there's a few spoilers. You can keep your finger in John 1 and look at uh, Genesis 22:18. We actually talked about this section last week. This is a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis 22. This is in the middle of God making his covenant with Abraham. We'll back up to uh, um, verse 16. Uh, by myself, that's this guy talking, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so if you, so we, you get this little glimpse that, hey, this isn't just for you and your kids. This is something that will bless all of creation. So he's given, he's given little hints. Then look again at Jeremiah 31, 31. We definitely talked about this. It's one of my very favorite verses in the whole Old Testament, maybe the whole Bible, because God is giving us a little, a little taste, this little spoiler of what's to come. The Jews at the time when they heard it, they didn't quite fully understand what he was saying. They knew it was a good promise, but they didn't know the depth of the promise. Jeremiah 31, 31, behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, the Israel and Judah, they treasured the covenant that God had made with them. That was the most important thing to them as a people and to them individually because it's what made them a people. It's what set them apart from everybody else, that God made a covenant with them. So if he's saying, I'm going to make a new one, it's a pretty big deal. Not like the covenant that I made with with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? In their minds, within them. And I will write it where? On their hearts. Where did he write it before? On the stone tablet when Moses was up on the mountain. But he said, no, this time I'm going to write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. But they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. What he's talking about there is um, that there will be no no mediation between us and him. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin. No more. So he's, he's dropping a little spoiler. He does it all the way through the Old Testament. Drops little spoilers, little inklings. Remember, we talked about uh, the whole fall last week and Adam, Adam and Eve fall. And, and God talks to the, the serpent and he says, uh, I will set enmity between, between your seed and her seed. And how Paul later on told us that seed wasn't plural. That seed was singular. He was talking about Jesus. And so at the very beginning, we have, he, he drops a little spoiler saying, hey, there's something better that's coming. Look at um, Genesis 3 um, as the, he drops little, little hints of the things that are going to happen um, that we don't realize until down the road. You know, you get to the end of the, of the book and you're like, ah, of course, he was the murderer because he said that back in chapter 5 and I didn't understand. Look at Genesis 3, verse 15. This is the same um, verse I was talking about when I was to look at it. I will put enmity between you. I can't say that word tonight. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise. He shall, I'm sorry, I was looking, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Look at Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to be doing, obviously, a lot of um, jumping around tonight, and then I'm going to get you guys to talk to me a little bit. Make sure you guys stay awake. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, so, he, so he's saying that the Lord's going to give you a sign. This is going to be clear to you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that is a huge promise that they didn't understand until you cross a certain point in the story and you look back. Because that word Emmanuel, you guys know what that means? God with us. God with us. I mean, that... We'll get into that later. That's a pretty cool promise. Look at Micah. 
You're like, oh no, a minor prophet. <laughs> exactly. I can't find it. I just flip until I run across it. Actually, anybody have the book of the books of the Bible memorized? Yeah. You? We have I was in Awana, and we had to learn it, and I had a, a song. I had to Awana. Awana, yeah. I learned the New Testament Awana, that John and Angela, he's talking to the whole Testament. Oh, yeah. This is Exodus of Eutychus. All right, uh, Micah 5, verse 2. That's still how I know where the books of the Bible are. Like, Jonah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Okay. <laughs> Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, that word, Epaphratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth... For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And then look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, I didn't give you the dates. At the, the, um, our best guesstimate is the promise to Adam and Eve is about 4,000 years B.C., somewhere in that range. The, the prophecy of Isaiah about... Um, the virgin shall, shall conceive is about 700 years B.C. The section, that verse that we just read about that somebody in very important is going to come out of, uh, out of Bethlehem, who the Jews are calling the Messiah because God has promised this deliverer that will come. That's about 700 years B.C. And then Malachi 3, verse 4. I should have been turning there. Now I'm holding you up. Malachi 3, verse, we'll, we'll start with verse 2. No, let's start with 1. Behold, I sent, <laughs> behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Israel will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So saying this, that person who's very important, the Messiah who's coming, that he will come to the temple in Jerusalem. So these are just four, there's three of the dozens of very specific prophecies that were given about somebody very important, the Messiah, the deliverer who is coming. And then we see the story really start to unfold um, when we turn the pages into the New Testament. I'm going to read this section of scripture to you guys. It's kind of long, but I want to read it. I think this is very appropriate since we're heading into Thanksgiving and then we'll be heading into Christmas a week from now. Some of us may already have our Christmas trees up. A week from now, you know, a lot of us will have our Christmas trees up. There'll be decorations going on. It'll be all of us for Christmas. And the thing that we're celebrating 
is a miracle. Uh, it's, I mean, it's an incredible miracle. J.I. Packer said the incarnation that is... It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> J.I. Packer said that the incarnation was far more a miracle than the resurrection. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Why is that such a miracle? Because it's, it, it blows humanity's collective mind. That's why it is, it is a tremendous miracle. But look at John chapter 1, verse 1. All right, it's a long section, but let's stick with me and we'll make it through together and we'll, we'll live to tell stories about it. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, which by the way, um, this is an incredible statement because to the Jews, they, the, the Jews, out of reverence to God, they, they wouldn't say the name of God, right? So they would, they would substitute the name of God. Instead of saying Yahweh, they would say often the word of the Lord. So they would, they would say, instead of saying Yahweh came to Moses and spoke with him, they would say the word of the Lord came to Moses and spoke with him. So they had this concept that the word of the Lord and God, it's, it's all tied in together because God communicates and reveals himself to us, they are going to even call him the word of God. And then in the Greek culture, which is the great culture of the time, they talked about logos or wisdom. And the, the concept of was that wisdom was ultimate. You're pursuing wisdom. It's the ultimate thing to get to. And they called it the word, the logos. That, that, so there's a sort of concept that in, in Greek in Greek culture, uh, well, anyway, we won't even get into that. Let's, 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 I'll, I'll go down a bad rabbit hole that won't take us where we want to go tonight. It's, it's pretty interesting, but we won't go there. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So, so far, Jews are reading this, Greeks are reading this, and they're saying, yes, that's absolutely true. Even though they're thinking about two different things, they're both saying, yes, that's absolutely true. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. That was very big because John the Baptist was a huge Deal. He was, I mean, he was a celebrity in the world at his time. He his ministry was huge. He he was packing out the, their equivalent of of stadiums. He was famous. I mean, it was he turned the world upside down all by himself. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Doesn't this part of John just get a little bit confusing? It's about light and life and just going back and forth. I always found this very interesting that uh, they always say, tell new believers to read the book of John. And I get like halfway through the first chapter, and I'm like, what in the heck is he taught? Why would we tell a new Christian to read this? How are they supposed to know? What in the world? He, 
He came to his own, that's Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So now the Greeks and the Jews are reading this and they are absolutely flipping out. Because to the Jew, you're saying that this guy, Jesus, this man, he not only did he come from God, but he was God. He was with him in the very beginning. He is of the same essence with the Father, and he came. And so that's blowing their mind. That They have no category for that. No man can be God. That's, that is crazy talk to them. That's blasphemous. And to the Greeks, it's, it is super crazy because to the Greeks, there's... There's this concept called Gnosticism, and that's that everything that's physical is bad and evil, and God is spiritual and he's pure, and the two cannot mix, that everything that's of material is dirty and bad, and God is good, so the two can never, can never meet, and yet you're saying that word became flesh, driving them absolutely batty. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The Jew is saying, Yes, that's true. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And that's going to drive them crazy. The incarnation is this concept that God who created the heavens and the earth, and yet mankind fell and then took all of creation with him, that God said, I will redeem man and I will redeem all of creation. And the way that I will do it is I will become a part of creation. I will add to my divinity, to my glory, I will add humanity, and I will become a man in order, in order to be the substitute that we're going to talk about next week in the cross. And that is a crazy, crazy thought. So this is the heart of the, of the concept of the Incarnation. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. Yes? Uh, a good way to explain it would be that God is like two one shampoo. Fully conditioner and fully shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I am really sorry. <laughs> Can I just tell you that? Uh, oh, I did. Did I just? <laughs> did he take your two in one? <laughs> I, I wasn't prepared for that. I, wasn't. <laughs> I think that's a Justin Bieber song. Gotcha. All right. So, what are the what are the what are the challenges? This is where we all start to participate here. What are the except Hudson? No, no, I like that. I like that. I like the two in one. 
Um, what are the challenges of believing or of understanding, or, or just when you think about Jesus is fully God and fully man, what are the challenges that come with that? Right, so how can Jesus have been God if he was a man, right? I mean, how could that, how could that happen? What are the others, yeah? The natural inclination to sin and temptation. Yeah, so the, sort of the, the idea that how could Jesus be sinless and be God and yet still be a man? Because certainly he, if he was a man, then he certainly had to be, you know, sinful, sinful messed up like me. What else? What are the other challenges? Think about this. It's amazing to think about that God is so big that a human body could contain him. You know, it's almost like I almost could see like God trying to fit into a human body that couldn't contain all the glory and just like explode. <laughs> I mean, to me in my head, yeah. that's just what would happen because he's just so big. Absolutely. Very uncomfortable for him. <laughs> <laughs> You have to clean your room. You could just be Mary Poppins instead. It's kind of like the Incredibles. You know how they had to, like, they had to try very hard to be normal kind of thing? And they're just like, oh, wait, I can't do that. <laughs> well, see, I had, when she was talking about the glory couldn't fit in, this is where my mind goes, you know, because I did have small children at one time. You know, Beauty and the Beast, when the Beast gets turned back into the man, and you see all the bright lights shoot out from every, you know what I mean? That's what... You think, man, you know, didn't he glow? Right. You know, of course they knew he was Jesus. They saw him, you know. But then again, you know, did he have acne as a teenager? <laughs> right. You know, well, he didn't eat any fried foods. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a book that was called uh, Jesus Burps. <laughs> and it was, it was meant to show, like, how you don't think of, you know, he had wax in his ears. Right. He had nose hairs. Like, he went, you know, and, and, and so it's really difficult to think. Like, you just, you overlook the fact that, like, he had sleep in his eyes, or, you know what I mean? Just yeah. the little things that made mm -hmm. him human. Probably had morning breath. Right. Yeah. Well, probably yeah. morning, noon, and night breath, because I don't think they had much oral hygiene. All right. <laughs> That's true. He probably wore a turban, too, which I thought was just throwing me. Because you never see a picture of Jesus standing in a white robe with a turban on his head, but he was a Jewish man at that time, and he probably did. That's where a picture he looks like. A white American, rock star, yeah, perfect hair, perfect, yeah, more of a metrosexual, kind of a nice guy, kind of. Dude. With a grin on his face. <laughs> <laughs> what else? What are the other challenges of, of thinking? Because because this concept, if we say what makes Christianity different than any other religion, you the easy answer is the Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? But it's the concept of who, exactly who Jesus is. Because if you say, all right, this Jesus that we have in Scripture, he was fully God and not man, then you would have some people that could agree with that, that are parts of other religions. They could say, okay, I can jive with that. If you say he was, he was just a man and was not God, a whole bunch of people can agree with that because they have to fit him into their construct somehow because he was such a historically abrupt, abruptive 
thick, I don't know, we'll just roll with it. Disruptive. He, he, disruptive, thank you, figure. He, but if you say he was both fully God and fully man, it has a lot of implications that throws everybody off. What are some other challenges with that, with that concept? He should be a pure, full grown, not a bit of baby. I think that's the one thing at Christmas that hit me a few years ago. I love the song, um, Oh Holy Night or Silent Night, because I think about how what is the most defenseless creature on the planet? It is a newborn baby. Completely defenseless. And that God would make himself that complete defenseless being in the hands of his man. I think that's, I mean, he's, here's the concept is, he's born, he's, he's laying in that manger or wherever they end up having him, his mother's holding him, like, he's not play acting, like, he's not there laying in the manger thinking, oh, look, I'm, I'm going to pretend like I'm a baby, but I'm like holding, <laughs> I'm holding the world, like, together right now, uh, he actually was a baby who grew, the Bible tells us he grew in wisdom and stature. Like, he really grew. Like, he, he, he learned how to read and write. He did, at one point, he didn't know how to, and they taught him how to read and write. He didn't just inherently have all that. You know, I, I think it's kind of silly. The, um, uh, I think one of the, was it, one of the songs was about, like, he doesn't know crying he makes. I think that's kind of silly. Like, of course he cried. Like, whenever he was dirty or he was hungry, like, he cried like a baby cries. Like, that's, that's a part of the deal, but that's difficult to understand because, because the way each of us goes and the way in general that people have messed up in the past in understanding Jesus is we want to think of him more human than he was God or we want to think of him more God than he was human. And when we go either of those directions, we start to veer off course. Um, what are some other, other challenges? <laughs> what? That's what they said. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 very it's very crazy that um there was this one guy we won't get into names, but um he he said in the in the early church, he said, Okay, um Jesus wasn't 
he wasn't of the same substance of God. You're saying, how can he turn his face away from himself and all these things? He was of a like substance. God created something that was like himself. Which is wrong. But, that, but then you get off into all kinds of problems. That takes away the divinity of Christ then. I'm if sure. there's something like him, well, hello, we were created in his image. That's where cults become. Right. Yeah. And that's where the phrase of that Jesus is of the same essence of the Father. That, that he's not of like substance, he's of the same essence. That everything that, when it tells us that, um, that, he, that he showed the glory of God to us, that he... He could only do that if he was actually God himself. What are some other challenges of the incarnation? I think I was going to talk about the, the Trinity as well because Jesus is praying to his Father and what's going on there. And, and I think the same concept of the Trinity and it's also this, the concept of 100% uh, divinity and we, that just it doesn't make sense. We want to go 50-50. You know, 50% shampoo, 50% conditioner, not 100-100. And uh, I think that itself is just a humbling that you've got to just step back and accept. Because if you don't, then you do try to push it one way or the other, this side or the other, and stay, instead of staying in the tension. Because in our finite human minds, we cannot comprehend us being 100% human having 100% God within us. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It's just, you know, how can you live and not see that? You know? I mean, I can go, what? At least for a moment. Right. <laughs> Maybe. You know, if I'm asleep. Right. But, you know, I mean, if you think of it that way, you know, just trying to wrap your mind around that, you know, and that he decided, I will leave my home where I am adored and glorified, and I get to glorify, you know, the Spirit and God the Father all the time, and I'm going to leave, I'm going to come down here as a child and have to be in soiled diapers. Gee. Let me sign up for that. You know, none of us could say that sure. because of our humanity. You know, I mean, how many people on this planet would you do that for? Would you choose to go back to being a baby for? I wouldn't go back to high school. What are you talking about? <laughs> I think that's why Mary is so revered in Catholicism because you can see she took that helpless baby and she cared for that nurtured that Jesus and Anna Jesus because she's the one that was the one destined to carry the child and then you also think you know God chose Joseph to be the stepfather to his son or himself right (laughs) (laughs) see that's what I mean What what are the other challenges interesting thing, um, if you look at history, there are, there have been a lot of holy men, quote, holy men, um, who claim to be close to God or to have heard a message from God, but there are very few that claim to actually be God. And that's where C.S. Lewis says, you know, anybody who comes on the, on the stage declaring, I am God, is either a lunatic or they're true. There's no... There's, there's no in-between. It's either he's, he's what he's saying or he's a crazy man or, or he's a liar. But he, that's, only, that's the only options you have. But, you know, 
Muhammad didn't claim to be God. He claimed to have heard a message from God all the way down the line. These, these people, very few of the great religious leaders actually say, hey, I am God. They say, I've heard from him. Jesus comes on the scene, and he actually does say it. Let's look at John. Look at John 8, 58 and 59. We'll look at what Jesus said about himself. Because uh, sometimes some people say, it's popular to say, well, Jesus was just a good man. His followers ended up making him more than what he was. He never claimed to be God. That's a popular line that's out there right now. Look at um, John 8, 58. Um, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why, why did they pick up stones to throw at him? And if he just said, well, it's kind of crazy, he said, before Abraham was, but it just seems like that's just kind of silly. Why would they want to well, stone him? <laughs> yeah, he said, I am. And he, was, and he was echoing when Moses said, whenever I go to the people, who should I tell them sent me? And he said, you tell them, I am that I am sent you. And he, Look at Mark 14. Have some complimentary rocks. <laughs> Mark 14. Mark 14. This is in the middle of um, Jesus. Um, he's standing before the council, heading to his death. Uh, let's start in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So he says, I am the Christ, the Messiah. And the high priest says that he's blaspheming because he's saying that he is God. Look at, back at John again. I should just had you there when we were there before. John 10 Verse 30. We'll start in verse 27, actually. I always do that, don't I? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father... 
who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch him out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. The Jewish picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus claimed to be fully God, but he was also fully man. Just like we said before, he was born of a woman. He grew, he worshiped, and he prayed, he worked. He got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty. It has examples of all this in scripture. He was happy, he was sad, he got stressed. He went to parties and he laughed. We have examples of all those and more. That he was he was a man. But then look at Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. This is what you guys have been talking about. This is talking to us about um, what Jesus did whenever he became a man. Um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though was, he was in the form of God, this is what Kate was talking about, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father, enjoying, like, being, being God and being in heaven is a pretty good gig. And yet... It says that he counted it a thing not to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it says that he, he emptied himself. All right, this is why Jesus had to be fully God in order to, um, and fully man, in order to be the one who would come to make sacrifice for our sins because us being sinful there was there, there could there nobody could be found among us who could stand between us and God he had to come himself and to do that he had to empty himself in a way of his divinity not empty himself in that whenever he was Jesus he is no longer God he he's emptied himself of the prerogatives of being God okay, you guys have already kind of touched on that like, he could be, he could um, exercise omniscience and omnipotence, but he chose not to because he came to be a man. And he had to be a man in order to be a sacrifice as a substitute on our behalf. There was no other way. And so think about this. God changed his form, not for only the 30 or so years that he was on earth, but he then died, was resurrected. We're going to talk about that next week. And is now sitting at the right hand of the Father as a human. 
So he changed his form, the son of God, who was eternally existed with God, is of the same substance, the same essence as God the Father, was there. Not only was he there, but he was the power by which the universe was created. And scripture tells us that he is the one who upholds it now by the word of his power. And he is today a human sitting in the right hand of the Father. Think about what depths God went through for his son to come, empty himself of the glory of being God and become a baby, to be born of a woman, and to have to go through. I mean, can you imagine, like, when I went to India for, I've been over there two times, both times, you have to kind of empty yourself a little bit because you're not going to get the, the, the luxuries that we have as Americans. Luxuries like a toilet you can sit on instead of squat over. You know, food that's comfortable, uh, uh, surroundings that are, you know, the whole thing. It's just India, India is very rough on Americans. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to come take the form of a human and have to go through all the menial things we have to go through as humans. You know, think about it. All of them, like I have to eat again, I'm hungry again, I have to sleep again, like, but yet he emptied himself of all that for us on our behalf. Think about that. That's why the incarnation, G.I. Packer said, is a greater miracle than the resurrection. Because the concept that God would become man is a crazy concept. That's why it was a spoiler in the Old Testament. They did not see it coming, and they didn't see it coming the way it was going to unfold. Because it was a crazy thought. The the Greeks, it was foolishness and crazy to them. And that's why it's still crazy today. We can't get our head around that concept as human beings. So, we talked about what are some of the challenges of believing in the incarnation. We're going to finish up. We're going to talk about what are the implications of the incarnation. Okay? I want you to put your thinking cap on and think about this. So if God left his glory in heaven, became a man, humbled himself, and he's 100% God and 100% man, not 50-50, all at the same time, he, uh, the theologians in... Uh, Back in the day, they said that he, he, he added to his divinity humanity. He didn't split it. He somehow incorporated humanity into his divinity. What are the implications of that, that God would become man? What are some implications? Hmm? He was tempted. Yes, yes. Talk about that. About that what really struck me recently wrongly think about it that not showing accrediting Christ enough with humanity you think well he was God that's how he did it you know and he did sin and then, but um, when you study and see how the Holy Spirit and how he relied on the Holy Spirit to play part of the Trinity to allow him not to sin to be tempted not to sin and to show us how we need to rely on the Holy Spirit in the same way yeah the um, the there's this whole argument that goes back years and years and years of, uh, and we won't get into tonight, but it's interesting question is, could Jesus have sinned? 
is it possible for him to have sinned? Because the question is, if he was tempted, then how can he be tempted if it's something that he couldn't that he, that he, that he couldn't do? So this whole this whole question that goes back and forth, but but here's the really the heart of the deal is that he was tempted. Whether he actually could have sinned because he was God or he didn't, or he could have and he just didn't, uh, out of the power of the Holy Spirit, we, either way he was out of the power of the Holy Spirit, the point is that he was tempted as a human being. That whenever he saw the woman walk by or you know, that he had an opportunity, maybe, maybe it's a kid, who knows, I don't know. Maybe Jesus, I don't know whether he was perfectly coordinated as a teenager and athletic, or maybe he was kind of gangly and prone to drop things and run into things. I don't know. If he ever broke his mom's jug and she wasn't there, like, was he ever tempted to tell her, to not tell her it was him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she would have believed him because Jesus was always truthful, right? And she knew, like, she, he had a background. An angel came and told her, and she hadn't had sex, and yet she had a baby, and, like, she would, but, and all. He was, all, he was tempted in every manner like us and yet did not sin, Hebrews 9, 14. Absolutely. Knowing what it was going to be like, and regardless of how accurate it is, but when you see the movie, The um, Compassion of the Christ, when that man, before he gets scorched, before he gets crucified, but when somebody slapped his face, off, that to me, knowing that he is fully God and fully man, and him agreeing to that happening to him, and not, you know, God the Father in heaven striking the person who right. took on the spot for, you know, you just think he signed up for that. He knew everything that was going to happen before he left heaven. And going back to the concept of the story that's playing out, isn't that the kind of heroes that we really celebrate in story? A hero who's strong, but yet takes the punches and sacrifices himself for somebody else. And that's thinking about my heavenly, my earthly father. Like you, when my brother was saying, he said one sassy thing and he threw him down the hallway. You know what I mean? Like just picked him up. Like he was going to hand up. He wasn't going to take that. Even just like a smart conduct. You know, just to think about what he was getting. Or somebody did something to your child. Insulting you. You know, being God the Father and God the Son, even though they were one and the same, somebody's messing with his kid. Right. I mean, we can handle it better if somebody does it to us than her. You know? I mean, yeah. And, like, I was talking to my friend the other day, and I was like, everyone is always like, yeah, Jesus came to the earth and was crucified for my sins, right? But stuff out is before the Gerards even took him, he was sweating blood. He was like, okay, God, they said there's another way for me to do this. I don't want to do this. Give me another way to do right. this. We always forget that, like, that's the human part of him. Like, the, I don't want to do this, God, I'll do it anyway. I will do your will. But please say there's another way here. And just knowing he'd go through all that pain that one of his disciples who he spent years with would betray him, like, that must have hurt so bad. Like, that's just so much to go through just for us pure humans so he can spend eternity with us. Yeah, that, that should have depth to it, right? I mean, he, Jesus isn't floating around on earth like a Stepford wife with this, like, kind of smile on his, <laughs> his face and just kind of going through, like, this is nothing. You know, I don't feel any pain. You know, I mean, he's, he's feeling the pain. He's, he's dreading what he has ahead of him. He's not enjoying it. When he, he's being tempted, he actually 
physically being tempted, mentally, physically being tempted. And what a human body has to feel. What a human being has to feel in order to keep in the sweat lodge. It was almost like, um, because Jude hadn't died on the cross and all that, so, you know, the Holy Spirit couldn't indwell his people. Jesus came to earth. He was the only human ever that had the power of God. And he walked it out as a model for us. And so we can go back and the life of Jesus and be just like God is going, it's possible. It can be done. You know, I love you enough. What a great leader. I mean, a leader never sends out anybody to do something that he himself hasn't done. But as an awesome leader, he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. I'm not going to ask him to do anything that I myself haven't done. And I think that's, what, a, what, a, what an awesome leader that that is, that he, that he did that, that he shows us. That's that's the um, that's, that's very that's a very important concept of the of the incarnation is that if Jesus wasn't one hundred percent God and one hundred percent man, um, in a way that he emptied himself of his glory and did what he did, Scripture tells us by the power of the Holy Spirit, then he wouldn't be an example to us. But because he emptied himself, if he just came from heaven and on a chariot and said, "Hey, I've come up to show you how to live life," we're like. How can I cut your God? How, how in the world can that be? But he emptied himself, and that's why he's an example to us. We, we, we follow in his example. I'll share one more little side note I was sure. thinking about earlier. And it had to be tough for him to come to earth to be human, but also he was pretty stoked because for the first time ever, he got to do this to the people that he created and loved. Don't you know he was pretty excited that he's like, I get to spend 32 years with these people. I never yeah. thought about that. And touching them and hugging them and, and spending time with them and not having this separated relationship. I get to have face-to-face relationship with these people. I think he was, he knew what was coming, but to him he was like, yes, I get to be right there with those people that's for a, a while. That's a cool thought. I never thought about it. Any other thoughts? What are some implications of the incarnation? When you talk about resurrection, his position in heaven now, I mean, he is our great high priest to be able to do that as a man to give himself to our Heavenly Father. And that implication of being able to be our advocate for us. I just I mean, think about think about that when it comes to evangelism. Okay? So part of the gospel is some really bad news. You are a sinner and you are eternally separated from God and under God's wrath. That's some pretty bad news. But then the, the, the good news that follows up on that is, but God became a human and paid your penalty and is now at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ, the God-man, making intercession for us that are believers. Like, I don't know, it's, it's just if you think about like, that's, and that's really good news to give to people. Any other implications you guys can think of? Um, how did that, that verse in the scripture where it says Jesus left, you to think about how he, you know, was tempted and he just, he felt all of the emotions that we feel. 
Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that John Hunter too in the weeping that Dr. Lab said earlier? He was, you know, he was knew what was before him, but at the same time his heart kind of broke because he knew his time was over with the people that he had created relationship with. So I think sometimes I just wonder if maybe he felt a little torn in that realm too, because he loved being able to spend time with this little thing before it was over. I mean think about him as a man. This is the God that we proclaim. We proclaim a God who had come become a man. He's going his his one of his best friends in the world has died. He shows up on the scene and his sisters are weeping and they're blaming him. If you had been here earlier, we know that you could have healed him. And he sees everybody crying and weeping and, and what does he do? He cries. He cries. And he knows he came there. He's going to raise the guy from the dead. And so he didn't come like, you know, you know on, right, yeah. <laughs> Everyone, I am here. Weep no more. No, he came and he cried because their hearts were broken. Think about that. I mean, that's amazing, amazing God. Uh, even in itself, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's one of the most meaningful ones. It's two words. True. Sure. Yet, extremely meaningful. And like you said, you just go, well, welcome. Now move that stone over. Lazarus just needs to get out. Because right. I just brought him back to life. <laughs> Where do you guys see this one? <laughs> yes. Lasers. Silly, it's petty, it's yeah. That, that's one implication that I was thinking about is that Jesus left heaven where things were comfortable, became a man and emptied himself, sent on a mission from God and incarnated who God was to the people that he appeared to. And that is exactly, except the part about us being God, is exactly what God has called us to do as a people, as a as a church plant in this area, he's called us to, 
to leave comfort, to engage a people and incarnate, show them. What, what do we call the church? What is, what is the church? What, what, the body of Christ. We are the revelation of Christ to the world to incarnate the church to the culture, to the people that are around us that we are a part of. And that, that takes leaving the comfort and emptying ourselves. But we often have seen all of us, and what we see in ourselves, not just in what we've seen in other people, but in ourselves, is we do want to be that, I'm here, look, I'll be here every day, I've got this, I don't, you know, I just, I've got it under my, under my belt, you know, I've got this thing, especially if it's a gift we have great that he's graced us with, we then want to take that and say, I'm good, I'll show you the way. I'm going to start a raising people from the dead ministry. <laughs> and take a love offering. Yes. <laughs> All right. Any, any other implications while we're wrapping up here? Laughter. Here's, 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 for, at first I thought you said, your friend just farted, and then I realized you said your brain just farted. Yeah, it took me, but it took me, I was like, okay, well, thank you for that announcement. <laughs> oh, it's on. Okay, here's a couple of implications that we have, and then we'll wrap up. One, one implication is that creation is not inherently evil. That, that sometimes we as Christians have want to, we know that this world has fallen and we want to then associate everything in this world as fallen and bad and that one day God will come and he'll take us back to heaven, he'll steal us out of here and we'll go somewhere that's finally good. But Jesus showed us that God is committed to creation and God is committed to redeeming not only mankind but all of creation itself. He's that says that creation groans and waits for the full revelation to come whenever he returns and he remakes the, the heavens and the earth. And that, that that's, he's going he's gonna to redeem all of it. And so Jesus came and him being, becoming a human and being a human right now at the right hand of the Father, it shows us that just like the rainbow was the promise to show that you know, we can count on the fact that he's not going to destroy the earth like that again. That Jesus being the right hand of the Father assures us that he will redeem all creation. And though, and though things are upside down now and it doesn't seem like things working the way they're supposed to, that he will finish the work and redeem it all. And then the other implication is that just the reality that Jesus would come and it said that he would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, and that God is with us. I mean, in the darkness of the story that I was playing forward, I mean, the, this, it's a lot of darkness, and then you have one piercing shaft of light when Jesus shows up on the scene, and then it's sort of like the scene that starts to unfold at the end of the movie where you're like, oh, that's what was going on. And when Jesus comes on the, on the set, that's what happens. You're like, oh, wow, that's what he was doing. What a great ending of the story that is God is with us. And that was the promise that he had made. I will be with you. I'll be in you and among you. I will be your God and you'll be my people. And that's what we have a foretaste of now as the church. 
And that's what he will finish at the end of time whenever he remakes the heaven and the earth. And that's, that's going to be amazing.